Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is our special guest, Shemaine Tan. She is the Chief Growth Officer for Sakuro. She's an author of multiple books, one of which we're going to talk about today, and she is the founder of the Cyber Risk Meetup, an international networking association for security professionals. So, Shemaine, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Yeah, so I I reached out to you and asked you to come join us when I saw you talking about your most recent book, Cyber Mayday, which I thought was a very fascinating title to begin with. And then as I started understanding what the book was about, I was like, okay, we got to talk about this. I love interviewing other fellow security authors. So let's start with the book. Why'd you write it? Who'd you write it for? (laughs) Yeah, so that's a very important question. So Cyber Mayday and the day after is, okay, why did I write it? I wrote it with my co-author, first of all, Dan Lawman. So he's the first CISO for the state of Michigan and former CISO. <laughs> he's taken on many roles since then. I mean, he was also formerly from NSA and, and a long list of amazing achievements and, and milestones that he has accomplished for the industry. So I met Dan Lawman when we were talking together for my first book actually. And then many years later, we've always been, you know, in, kept in touch. And we kept talking about the different industry trends and observations that we have seen, not just in the US, but over here where I am, which is in Australia, and also all the different portfolios that I cover in different parts of Southeast Asia. And we find that there's so much stories, true stories that can be exchanged, lessons that can be learned. And we wanted to put that together and, and bring it together for everyone to learn. So that's how it that came about where we feel that many stories are interconnected, right? And and there's a lot of new generation also of um, CISOs or CIOs that step up to their role. And it's really important if that they are equipped, you know, and Cyber Mayday, there are three different parts to that book. So it's about what happens before Mayday happens, Mayday strikes. And then in the middle part is, you know, what do you do when the power goes off? Right. What, what do companies actually do when Mayday strikes itself? And then the last part is also about recovery. What happens, you know, like a lot of times news, you know, uh, when there's an attack, it hits the fan and you see a lot of media headlines. But what happened after that, you know, a couple of months from them, years from now, how do companies actually recover? So we did a lot of studies based on that. And then lastly, you know, if you have a time machine, how would you do things differently? So it's a really fascinating project to bring all of that together. I like the idea of any discussion of time machines. So we're gonna, we'll get into that. Okay, so it's for security leaders 
and it gives some sort of practical advice on what to do. When you say mayday, we're talking about an attack, right? Cyber mayday, yeah. So it could be any form of it, a cyber attack. Okay. So I know you wrote a whole book on it, and it's hard to share whole books of ideas in a, a talking point. But what would we say is, you, you mentioned there's sort of these three parts to it, one being, what do you do before? What should we do before an incident? Okay, so there's a lot that you can do before, but it really depends on um, different organization, the maturity, you know, where they are at, the business leaders as well, you know, what's the mission of the company. So there's a lot of factors. So I think what we did was we studied different um, industry sectors, um, taking into consideration as well, um, cultural context and, and all of that. I'll just to summarize, maybe one key thing that, that needs to be done is a lot of times, if you are a new CISO, maybe you just come on board to the organization. There's a lot of things that you don't know, right? And it takes time where they have to really build a good understanding of, of where the organization is. And it's hard to do that alone. So what we have seen work really well is about them actually taking more time to find allies within the organization to really understand the other C-suite levels. You know, what is their own mission? What is their own business objective? How do they perceive business risk? And then being able to align that language accordingly to the different C-levels and then really get them on your journey as well so that you can really execute your strategy more effectively. So that would be a good start to understand where the business is at before you can put in place any strategy. I love that here we are, we're talking about what to do in preparation for a cyber attack. And the first piece of advice you gave was find allies. I think that's incredibly fascinating that that's probably actually not what most security leaders are doing when they first start an organization, right? They're probably saying like, all right, let's, let's see what our, I don't know, pick a technical domain, right? What are our firewall rules and what are, what's our, how do we provision access? And they get really into the, the weeds pretty quickly. And you said something really differently, which was let's build allies. So why is this an important idea? Yes, because you can't, you can't do things alone, right? You can have, like a CISO can have his own or his or her own agenda. And there will be, you know, they'll have their, they'll bring their own past experience also to the organization. They'll have an idea of the roadmap they want to achieve and all that. But every company is different and there is a different culture. Maybe the business are doing things differently for many years. Um, the way they understand or perceive risk is also different. So it's very important to, to take the time to understand who you're working with. Also understand like what's on their agenda, what's important to them. And when you do that, then you're able to map out, okay, this is my, my goals, but I can show the other C execs that I can, by working together with me, we will be able to achieve their goals as well. So it's about when you take the time to do that, you're able to achieve a lot more together as a group as compared to being an individual, being a, a solo person, trying to drive a huge change. Okay, so as we talk about this idea of allies, you, you describe this in such a fascinating way that is essentially, or what I heard you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that what we want to do by finding allies, it helps us understand how to win in the organization, basically, because you understand what matters to other people, you understand how to win together. And that that's a really fascinating idea because it seems like in a lot of organizations, security wants to support the business, 
But oftentimes the business sees security as a hindrance to the business. So I guess there's two parts to this question that I'm asking right now is one, is that true? And two, if it is true, how do we overcome it? Do allies help us or how do we deal with it? Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a really current observation and relevant observation as well. So it is true to some extent. There are There's a whole group of you know, CSX that I work with that have a very maybe stigmatized and traditional perception of the CISO and the role of the CISO. And they do tend to see them as showstopper, a roadblocker. But for those groups, it actually is very dependent on their previous interactions with other security leaders. And that's how they came about to draw those conclusions where they feel that, you know, the security leaders are always stopping them, saying no to ideas so quick, you know, to, to, to turn down their ideas without really listening or, or seeing how they can work together to make things happen. Then there's also the other group of CSX that have very entirely different experience. And that's dependent on, you know, they have actually worked very well with CISOs, who have collaborated with them. And, and these are the CISOs that uh, when I dive deep into their stories, their approach was very different. They When they first came onto the job, they took the time to come, like, they position themselves as we are here to solve a solution together. You know, you, uh, they will tell the CSX that, okay, you have all these goals and KPI and I can help work with you to make that happen, but in a safe way. And, and they brainstorm together as well, um, coming to the CSX with solutions of how they can make this happen as compared to just saying, no, you know, you can't do this. So um, I think it's about the approach and that's how perceptions are also being derived. And it's based on the experience the C-level um, have. Well, there's two parts to it. And I, th- I think you ordered or you answered both. The parts were essentially, is this true? Is this a problem? And how do we, how do we overcome it? And I heard you say that, yes, this is true. And the way we overcame it were, was woven in throughout your answer. So do you think that this is true? People will sometimes make the metaphor that security is like brakes on a sports car and brakes technically slow a car down, but really what they do is they help the car be able to control its velocity around difficult corners that are challenging to navigate. And without brakes, you could never win a race. How do you feel about that metaphor? Oh, well, I guess you have to be <laughs> an avid car driver and a car racer to really appreciate that. I, I know I've heard of the analogy and it's been used by some CISOs as well that brakes help you to accelerate faster, right? I think stories depends on like who is your audience and, and who are you telling that to. There is a really good story that I want to share as well, which is in the Cyber Media and the day after. So I did interview and speak to the former CISO at NASA, Preston Miller, and he used to actually come from Pentagon, you know, where he was working in a very industri- different industry. So Pentagon, you know, they're dealing with war fighters. You want to make sure that your data is safe, right? And it's confidential. So out of like CIA, the, the triad, C would be really at the top of their priority. They have to make sure, you know, it doesn't leak out anywhere, right? But this is a good example of when he changed industry and went to work for NASA. And that's where it's a whole different ballgame because you're talking about launching rockets into space, right? And if if you were to bring your previous mindset of how you view security and how you converse about security and you try to apply it in a different industry, that's not going to work. And he found out too quickly that, 
it's a whole different landscape. They look at different threats. The way they view threats is also different. And what he learned along the way is that out of the CIA, it's actually I that was most critical for them, which is integrity. They have to make sure that the data they are sending back and forth from Earth to space and to the rockets is extremely accurate you know you can't go off by any small amount because that's going to be detrimental to the rockets you know the timing the data that's going to cost billions of dollars if there's any mishaps so the way he framed the conversation with the business people had to change and and adapt along the way and that took an openness to really understand the world that they're in and then apply and bring his security lens to that sort of conversation. So just wanted to yeah, illustrate that to show you um, the difference, you know, in an in industry and also the stories that you're going to use that will matter. I'm now asking for my own personal bias. <laughs> so, okay, so I see this happen all the time, right? Where in a large enterprise, you've got a an existing approach to how the, how the enterprise approaches security. Like th they do it in whatever way they do it. And then like any enterprise, you have turnover in leadership, right? That, that VP or whatever, they wind up getting, you know, promoted or they get poached or they go to another organization and in their void, someone else comes in. And this seems to be very common, at least in corporate America, I'm not sure around the world where whoever the new person is that comes in, it doesn't even matter sometimes what is in place. They say, I'm going to do it differently because that wasn't my idea. And they try to do what you described a moment ago, where they bring, you know, I come from XYZ industry and now I'm in, you know, DEF industry. And so I'm going to take what we did in XYZ and I'm gonna apply it here and it's going to be so much better. And then it's, you know, there's all kinds of pain and difficulty and the organization usually becomes set back because they're relearning the same issues. How do we deal with that problem? Hmm. Wow. How do we deal with that as in the rest of the organization if you're facing someone like that? Is that your question? Yeah, well, I guess my maybe you don't have the answer because if I had the answer, I would be advocating for it. <laughs> I don't know if there is an answer. But what, the reason I'm asking you this question is because one of the things that I am taking away from your stories you're telling here is that you've seen companies be successful in overcoming that sort of that bias that a new executive might have. A new executive comes in and says, we're gonna do it my way. And you've seen where organizations are able to, maybe it's just that person was you know, smart enough to realize maybe my way is not exactly right for this organization I need to learn the organization. What I'm trying to say is as there's that turnover and new leadership comes into an existing security program and their first instinct is to want to change it, how do we make it so that they don't immediately start making changes before they before they understand what's going to be best for the organization? Mm. Oh, that's a brilliant question. So it's about also awareness. At the end of the day, right, you're dealing also with humans. So we talk about, you know, people processing technology. And sometimes a new leader comes in, he just wants to wipe out the previous technology and put in new technology. But you're also dealing with people. People are the users of technology. People are the implementers of technology, right? So it's about what the, I guess the rest of the organization can do when they see someone going all crazy and trying to implement all these different changes. The rest of the C-levels can actually take them aside to understand where the person is coming from, right? And it's also about understanding the context. You're right, because they would come in with their own past experience uh, and way of doing things. And sometimes it will work really better for the organization. But in everything, it's about there's 
101 things to do. It's about prioritizing what are the key changes that would really benefit the organization most effectively and also from a long-term perspective. So it takes collaboration, right? So when we talk about what being the CISOs to collaborate with the other CSXs, likewise, the vice versa would also apply. So the other CSXs will need to take time, walk the CISO through, uh, what's the organizational culture like, what's the current uh, level of awareness, how the board of directors are like, you know, what's on their agenda at the moment, what's going to motivate them as of now, and then come up with ways where they can pick their battles and focus on the key things. So it's a teamwork. I love it. Yeah, uh, teamwork. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about what a leader should do or an organization, I guess, should be doing in the before phase. So then you mentioned there's part of what you have learned through your research and, and writing your book about what happens during the incident. So can you walk us through what is, I don't know if best practices is the right word, that phrase is kind of stupid, but uh, like what, what should be happening during the moment that is a mayday moment? Yeah, so the way how companies or leaders react and how well they can react to it, it really depends on how much prep work they have put in beforehand, right? And we, yeah, you're right. It's not about best approaches, but like really great approaches that have worked well for different companies. It looks like it, it varies, right? Depending on where the organization is. But what we have seen um, of companies who have reacted really well is when they have prepared their leaders, where they know who are the senior ones that are, are going to be the face when there is a crisis. What is the communication going to be like? What is the tone? You know, are there, I, I actually did a lot of research also with the crisis communication research lead in Asia who led, you know, like for missing airlines and, and all that. He was actually leading the communications to, to, to the investigation and to the public. His team did a study of like medical protocols as well. You know, when doctors have to give really sad news to families and how do they break it down to the families? And they did a comparison from the aviation industry medical industry and picked up good lessons that can be learned. And it came up with this framework called the console framework. And I was so fascinated by that framework because I looked at it and I look at our cyber industry at the moment and I see how you know companies are breaking bad news. The CEOs, how are they delivering that to the media or to their customers? And there's a lot of areas where we can improve in that. So console, I won't go into it because there's a lot of details to it, but I would say the key, one of the key elements that has been missing is a lot of times the focus has been, I mean, it's good that it's consistent, the messaging is consistent, they give a lot of information about what kind of breach it is, but they, it can be too technical and they rarely, they didn't take into consideration the nuance of the messaging and the audience. So like, who are they actually delivering this to? Is it going to be too technical? And another key thing is sometimes there's a lack of empathy. And because a message might be might sound really good, but if it doesn't connect with the human, customers are not going to take it well. They can't identify or relate to it, right? And that's not going to be compassion as well that's being shown back to the company. So empathy is a really key thing that has to be included in the messaging. It's interesting because this exact phrase, empathy, 
comes up a lot on this show. It comes up in different contexts. This is the first time anyone has mentioned it in the context of like, hey, you're in the middle of an attack. You should be empathetic. But I think I think that's super fascinating. So what I'm hearing you say is that as a company or I'm saying company, but th that's inclusive of I'm going to include any organization, even if they are not a commercialized business, but like any organization that uh, is in the middle of an incident. What I'm hearing you say is we should they sh they should have compassion. They should have empathy for the people who are affected by it. Is, is that correct? Or are you saying the people who are supporting that organization should be empathetic? So both ways. So yes, on one, like externally to, so I've also spoken to like the CIO of Toll who went through like, you know, cyber attacks twice in three months, right? Um, and Toll is a huge log logistic um, company, organization. But what is key is not just empathy shown towards a customer and how you deliver the message, but empathy to the people who are supporting this crisis at the moment. So, you know, when there is an incident, all hell breaks loose, they are, yeah, it's insane in terms of, you know, not having enough sleep. They're just uh, in a room all trying to solve this together. And this is a time where sometimes we have seen leaders pointing fingers, they are blaming, and that's, that's so, that's not the time to do that. You know, it's about really, you know, but that's where the rest of the leadership can show a lot of support during this time. And empathy is key. That's going to help drive your war fighters through the war in that sense. And then after that, also being able to look at the different lessons learned to, to bring the organization to the next level. So you can go a lot further when you have that kind of culture where it's more supportive as compared to finger pointing, blaming, trying to yeah, pin the blame on someone, get them fired and, and things like that. Yeah, that's not going to work. A lot of CISOs, whether justly or not, have a little bit of fear in the back of their mind that their job, they become the fall guy in the event of an incident, right? So an incident happens, someone's got to get fired, it's going to be the CISO. But what I'm hearing you advocate is maybe that's not exactly the right way to think about it. Should, should CISOs be the proverbial quote, I'm putting this in air quotes, you know, the fall guy, like should companies be thinking about CISOs in that way? Like they're the ones who get disposed of in the event of an incident, or is that just a complete lack of empathy when we think about it that way? Mm. I would take it further and say it's not just about a lack of empathy, but it's also a lack of understanding of the actual role of cybersecurity and cyber resilience in organization if you're just going to pin the blame on, on the CISO because it's not the responsibility. Uh, keeping an organization safe is not just the sole responsibility of the CISO. It's actually on the responsibility of different C-levels, the leadership team, even the board of directors. It's, it's on them as well. It's a team effort. I go back to what I said earlier. And it, it, for example, I'm a big believer of, you know, it takes a community to build a community. And if you want to drive anything effectively, you can't do that alone, right? So, and also if you look at the other like CFOs, um, CIOs, there's different NCRHOs. I mean, all of them have different agendas, but their role does encompass parts and different aspects of cybersecurity. So they need to be, for CISO to do his job, his or her job well, he needs everyone to be on board. So that's why I would say the, the, the poor CISO shouldn't be the one taking the fall because it's it's on the whole leadership team. Well, I agree with you. And that that is probably music to the ears of many people listening right now. They're probably like, let's take this sound bite and get it out in the world. So uh, that that's cool. I, I agree with you. And it to me, it feels like I get why in the midst of a crisis, a company needs to demonstrate action 
and having a proverbial fall guy is a way to demonstrate that action, even if it's not at all the right solution. So, so that's good to hear you say that it's a, a leadership problem. So a time machine, you mentioned if we had a time machine, did we already talk about the time machine part? We were talking about the before, is that what you were referring to? If you had a time machine, what would you do differently? Or how, how, how does this time machine idea apply when we are looking post incident? Yeah, so that's more of like when you finish all your crisis, I mean, because it's usually very hectic, right? When you're in the middle of the crisis, but it's only when everything is done, the dust has settled. And then if you look back, you know, it's not about time for complacency then. It's about thinking about the next step. Okay, if this were to happen again, how can, are we, are we in a position where we, we are confident? We are more confident where we can say we are able to handle this better. Are there areas that we could have done better so that we will be more um, matured in our process, in, in our ways of um, handling things? So that's where the time machine comes in because with hindsight, you know, they always say, right, you, you're wiser with that. So when you look back, this is where I feel the lessons learned are crucial. And also for organizations who maybe haven't gone through this yet, you rather learn from the mistakes of others than learning from your own mistakes because those are very painful. So that's where the, the beauty of this book come in where, you know, Dan and I wanted to bring all that lessons together. We do the time machine for you. We take the time machine. We go back in time. We peel across all the different layers of lessons learned extract that out and bring it to the presence and and you have it there you know where you you'll go through all the lessons and and you become the wiser but it's not about learning all this it's also about being able to apply these lessons so that's um that's going to be on the readers it's going to be on our security folks to to take it and do something different with this oh, i totally agree with you on that at the end of any keynote that i ever give i always talk about like these ideas are fine but unless you go take action on them, what was the point? Like, why was I spending time up here on stage? Why were you sitting here in this room? Go do something with this idea. So how do we encourage, uh, as a fellow author, I'm very curious to hear your take on this. How do we get a reader to take action on ideas? They just learned you know, hundreds of pages of ideas. How do we go get them to take action? Mm, well, thanks for asking the question. I'm sure you have the answer as well for me. For me. Like uh, when I look, there's so many lessons. And sometimes I think, okay, I don't even know where to start, where to begin, right? So I think what really helps is, you know, I always love this verse actually. It says, you know, be faithful with what you have at the moment and, and start with that. So for me, I will always take the, like, I guess out of all the lessons, the one, the one small step that I can start with, right? And do it really well. So I'll take that first one, do it really well, and then I'll add on to the next level, add on. And I'll see how it, it expands that influence or that, that impact expands slowly across my other areas of, of work. And, and that's something that I can take satisfaction knowing that, okay, I've made a difference with this and now on to the next level. That's pretty smart. You're almost talking about how do we build habits and we build, we build habits by starting small. You know, that's what it, you know, to climb a mountain, you need to take the first step is kind of what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. And look at what's in your hands now, right? What kind of influence can you increase uh, with the people that you have already that are your advocates? Start with them. Start with them as your immediate allies. Because there's another thing I want to add is that a lot of people want to, they're very ambitious. They want to try to influence like the top level so that the top level influence downwards. But sometimes those could be really hard to, to start with. And what you can do is start sideways, you know, influencing your peers first. And then as you grow in mass, you grow in size, then you can think about how do you influence um, from down to the top. I like it. 
Well, Shemaine, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. I feel like I could ask you a thousand more questions, but we won't have time for that today, unfortunately. As we wrap up, is there any last parting wisdom that you want to leave our audience with? Wow, there's so many. It's the blank check, whatever you want. <laughs> mm, I felt like I left the earlier as my parting wisdom. All right, we'll take it as a parting wisdom. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, because that, that's something that I'm a firm believer on, right? Really just start with what you have. And then I think having genuine conversations with people around you, it's key because that's when you can understand the world that they live in. And I find that a lot of security folks, like everyone is all has, you know, amazing experience, right? We talked about it earlier that they are all like incredibly impressive in terms of their technical understanding, their, their expertise. And there is often I see like a show sometimes of ego as well in the room because everyone knows so much. But what I find that's really productive and meaningful is if we all become real active listeners, because when we take the time to go down to the root, where we take the time to understand people, where they're coming from, what kind of expertise they have to offer, I think that's where you can add a lot of value because you, you have a good understanding of who's in the room and how can you bring all of that together for a bigger outcome, a more meaningful outcome. So I guess that would be my parting wisdom. And yeah, something you're, you've done really well yourself. You're doing really well yourself, Ted. Because you're asking really good questions and you've uh, taken the time to extract out from people. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you. I, I like ending on the note of meaningful outcomes. That was the end of your, your parting wisdom. So, uh, Shemaine, thank you so much for appearing on the show today. Thank you so much, Ted, for having me and uh, really enjoyed it. Of course. For everyone listening, if you want to understand more about what Shemaine is up to or to request to appear on the podcast yourself, just head over to tedharrington.com backslash podcast and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.